0: Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada, with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. Good morning, all you beautiful souls, and welcome to another edition of Operation Tangle Romeo, the Tremor Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today on the show, so pleased to have Christian Lillington. Christian, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Mark. I'm very pl- pleased to be here with you today. Well, you've been a
0: busy, busy guy. you got all kinds of stuff going uh, here, and I would really like to start with your portal for healing, which uh, you call Warriors for Life, your website. Uh, what was the impetus for getting that website together?
1: Um, several different um, motivations for, for the website. Essentially, I I looked at all of the various portals that are out there, and, and there's so many good organizations and good resources, but like, just to find one, that had the links and the hot links and some of the sort of, um, you know, the sort of easy to look at, um, one-stop shopping. And so I started looking at what that would look like for me if I was going to design something and, and what purpose it would have. And that's where I designed us warriors for life, uh, essentially Canada. Um, and you know, it is supposed to be a tool to help, um, everyone be it the families or, uh, the people themselves who are injured with PTSD or complex trauma in general, um, and it's it's a work in progress, Mark. But it is definitely uh, something that keeps me busy um, outside of uh, other things like uh, like we spoke about earlier, like the book.
0: Well, it is needed, and it's a big reason I have this show. Uh, this show is an aggregate for resources. So every resource that I can find, I Find the founder or practitioner, bring them on the show, and we share that with the audience. And that's also what you're trying to do, is because it's so fractured. There's a thousand mom pop shops out there, as far as different resources, um, retreats, and multiple modalities of therapy. And there's just so much, but very, very few people know where to where to find all of them. And even after, I mean, this is episode 210. And even after all this work and what, five or six years on this road, I'm still finding every day uh, people like yourself that I didn't hear your name until I was introduced to you. It's like, well, holy smokes! Like, how many more are there? I thought when I started the show, I'd have like 30 or 40 episodes, but it's going to be more like five or six hundred. You know, I, I don't know if I'll ever be done because there's just so much out there to to bring to the audience because. When you don't know where to turn, you don't even get started. You know, when you don't even know where to find the tools, you don't even try. And uh, getting people access to those tools is so critical. So I'm glad that you uh, have been building Warrior for Life. How long has it been up?
1: Um, the site's really been active for about, I guess, just over a year now. And it, I intend to give it a lot more, put a lot more energy behind it as I move forward. Um like, I've gotten a lot of good suggestions, and I'm, and I'm working within the premise of, you know, I'm an, an, an educated in the arts world type person, so I'm working with technical difficulties and stuff that sometimes beyond, beyond my capacity, so I get lots of help uh, from my spouse. But um, it's been up for about a year and a half, and uh, it's, it's going to grow um, as, as Warriors for Life grows, as, as, a, as an, actual, an actual thing that I've been putting my whole heart and soul in sort of post-retirement uh, into.
0: Tell me about your book. I uh, when I read the the byline, the the, the subtitle, it uh, choked me up because it really hit home. Um, when did you write your book? Parade
1: State Zero. Um, Parade State Zero. I think it, it'd be fair uh, if I started by describing what that means to me, and I, I don't even describe it in the book itself what Parade State Zero means. So those who aren't military wouldn't necessarily know. Um, but essentially every day, um, you know, the people who are in charge of the, the soldiers will make a parade state and they'll put on it, you know, how many officers, how many senior NCOs, how many soldiers, etc. are there, how many people are sick, how many people are tasked out, etc. Um, and so the, the premise is when they say that there's no one on parade, that was sort of my way of saying that I've left the military to survive. And that sort of is the background behind the, the, the title uh, and of the book. Um, to be fair, I started writing at Mark, about five years ago when I first went to therapy in Homewood, which is a, an institute in uh, Guelph, Ontario. And what I thought when I started writing it was, if I'm going to be afforded the opportunity to, to heal, formally heal, um, um, and be, be given all of, all of the tools that are be- being thrown at me, I want to be able to sort of give that to other people. And like you had said just previously, like where do you turn? There's so much out there and there's not really uh, much that sort of, Brings it all together, you know the various modalities alone are mind boggling for for PTSD and operational stress injuries so um, so yeah, five years ago started the book um, and essentially it was my it was very cathartic. it was my way of healing and trying to understand myself <laughs> the, my trauma and what had brought myself to um, to that that breaking point um, which is which is when I decided that I could no longer move forward. Um, in my career,
0: tell me about that breaking point. What
1: did that feel like? What were the signs? Uh, well, it was actually a very, uh, a very uh, distinct event that, that led to my, my breaking point. We had—I uh, was a base commander, in just uh, in central Ontario at a base called uh, Fourth Canadian Training Division, uh, Fourth Canadian Division Training Center. Pardon me, in Meaford, Ontario. Um, and we had a soldier who was actually from my hometown in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia go missing on his graduation parade date um and so we had to do a search for him and we ended up finding him in the uh, Georgian Bay unfortunately um he had passed away and so um that I taking him that. home and burying him was something that um really um it was the breaking point for me because I'd lost so many people in my career and some of them had a, a profound impact on my life and so for me it was that led to led to me like no longer sleeping and, and it just amplified all of this sort of, it exacerbated every trauma symptom I had um, and I just became um, almost incapable of functioning.
0: Kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. When people sometimes say that this is what broke me and people don't understand how much is behind that, you know, um, it, it could be, it could seem like something that um, isn't a huge deal. I had a, my last show, uh, a lady whose son had committed suicide at the age of 15, if I recall. And she couldn't find out, what, what, what was this? Like, why? And all she could find is his pen broke. And he says, I can't even have nice things. Your pen broke, so you took your life. It's like, well, of course not. But but it, with that, this is just like the the one millionth thing on the top of the pile and that's what people don't understand is that it, there is a cumulative thing usually it's not just one event that will tip somebody over it's a it's a full full gambit of a lifetime of experiences uh starting in your childhood usually and and moving forward
1: absolutely and you you and you nailed it. It is cumulative. And I, I, sort of talk about that one event, but certainly at that point I'd, I'd had about, about a solid decade of a grind of, of fighting my trauma. And, uh, and I, and I, and the way I did that was I just, I was a workaholic and that was how I compensated. And I, you know, I numbed when I wasn't working, I was numb. Um, so it, it really was a slow burn for me, uh, like a death of a thousand cuts as it would be. Um, but one the last cut was really deep and I just, it was, I could not recover.
0: Yeah, and that's that's the story so often. So tell me more about Parade State Zero and what did you discover about
1: yourself as you were writing it? Well, <laughs> that's a that's a great question, Mark. What did I discover about myself? <clears throat> I discovered that um many things about myself, because as 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 you as you can see, it I take myself from childhood all, all the way up until just recently in January of twenty twenty two. Um, and I'd give you a sort of snapshot of my life. And in that I I could see that I was extremely competitive as, as I came into the military as a very competitive soul, um, in every sense. And that sort of shaped a lot of my, um, my ambition in the military as a career person. Um, and, and as I started hitting these roadblocks, you know, where I started losing people and, and, and various things started happening to me, um, it had a huge impact on my ability to, um, and my confidence essentially. Um, so what I learned g- going through the book is that, uh, as I was writing it is that I had a lot of negative energy in my, my time when I served. Um, it was reinforced by some sometimes the culture of the military at the time. And, um, you know, I was, I was, I was in it to win it. Um, so I was lock stock and, you know, lock stock and smoking barrels, as they would say, like I was, I was devoted, but it also was the thing that broke me, um, was that I put everything into it.
0: Tell me about the culture of the military that you experienced and how that was not helpful.
1: Yeah, it's, that's a, that's another good sort of, um, question, it wasn't helpful because the, I came in in the in the military in the early '90s, just this sort of you know, Somalia and all these Rwanda and the Balkans had just launched, and there's just there was just so much going on. What, but I was very young. What year did you? Uh, cross-
0: 1993.
1: I joined. Okay. And so, you know, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't necessarily a great year in this in the institution as it would be for you know, having the best people in the training establishments because most people were operational and moving and going all the time. So um, my experience initially in the military was that I didn't have a lot of guidance and mentorship from from anybody, really. Um, and that left me with a, a really sour taste in my mouth as It came, as it came down to sort of like, you know, who do you look to here to be, you know, pulled along and what what are where, where are my examples and who's who's setting the examples for me um so i struggled in my initial part of of my life in the military with just trying to find the person who i want to model myself after and um it, it, it is we kind of eat we you know in the core i was in it was very competitive um i was in the armored corps um which is you know part of the combat arms so it's it's that sort of mentality of you know you're you're a combat entity first always um soldier first. Um, so I would say that my early career, I really, like I really was like wandering, sort of looking for someone to give me, you know, some, a positive ro- role model. And then I started to get one as I started to mature into my, uh, like late, late twenties and thirties. Um, and then, in my, you know, as I started to, to progress up, um, in the military, I was able to sort of influence the people the way I wanted to be influenced essentially. Um, but never really was until i got to the rank of uh, major and that's when i started to have strong people in my life strong um, leaders strong subordinates and the military started to change a lot with the, the people they started to recruit were you know you know troops and soldiers were university educated and you know there was a, definitely a, a demographic change in how we recruit it and what kind of um, kind of people were coming into the institution and and i think it's all very positive positive. Um, but it was very different for me from my experience when I joined.
0: You joined at such an interesting time. I joined just before you. as in 91. But so when I joined, everybody, like all the instructors, were peacetime soldiers. And then the Balkans broke out in 92, which was a rude awakening and separated the wheat from the chaff pretty quickly. Um, then I uh, I rode it out in 94, um, the summer tour for Croatia. And there was a big change in the feel of the military, the energy of the people, the looks in their eyes. They're just different people because of the Balkans. Um, And then you joined when there's already a lot of Balkan veterans. So did did you really see a difference uh, from your perspective when you came in at 93 and going through officer training, both people that had been in the Balkans and people that hadn't?
1: I... Absolutely saw the difference because, um, especially within our, our core, um, the focus of, of training would uh, obviously had shifted to sort of a lot, a lot more focus on sort of what we were doing in, in, in the Balkans. And so f- for me, um, I, I think it was very positive. Like you said, like said they're sort of peacetime soldiers. There still are many of those that existed, you know, from the Cold War sort of era. Um, but then we, we had, you know, the Balkans explode. And on the heels of that, Afghanistan. So, and you know, those same veterans that experienced, like you experienced, um, um, moving onwards to Afghanistan, that whole shift. I had those three various sort of different types of um, military experience, right? Three different cultures almost. And it sort of went from peacetime to full war, you know, combat operations, um, and then everything in between. Um, in the matter of a decade, um, from when you joined until when I was on my first tour in Africa, essentially in 2001. Where in Africa? I I ended up deploying to Eritrea, Africa, which is uh, just north of Ethiopia, and uh, on a UN mission as a military observer in 2001 for seven months. It was a very eye-opening experience for me as a 24-year-old captain.
0: (laughs) My 24th birthday was in a war. And, oh, yes, and uh, as a military observer, tell me about that experience.
1: Well, it was a good experience for me because uh, you know you're you were unarmed as an observer um, in a war zone um, which you have to use your other faculties and your other abilities to you know negotiate and and uh, cooperate with the locals it was It was a crazy experience for someone from a small town in Nova scotia to to go to a famine Um, struck in a country countries i was right on the border of of sudan eritrea and ethiopia in was an absolute decimated part of the world and um you know for me it was i saw hunger i saw you know people very desperate just just to survive and um and really factions that were fighting over over tribal boundaries where we had wanted to put a you know a boundary on a map um Just because we like to you know have you know solid lines for every country but that's not the way those 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 people lived you know they lived on either side of the river and those each side of the river was a different country well they wanted to be able to you know to live peacefully and that's you know war broke out for various reasons but for a 24 year old it was um to see the inefficiencies of the un as well um it was very frustrating um, and you're you're laughing, but um, I'm being very kind, just saying it, you know, ineffic- <laughs> inefficiencies, but just just general poor leadership, you know, at the at the highest highest ranks.
0: Well, the more bureaucracy you have, the worse things work. You know, uh, bureaucrats Absolutely. are great at making sure that stuff does not work properly, that you don't have the right kit, and everything is ten times slower than it needs to be. Um, <laughs> and there is no bureaucracy like the UN.
1: No, that is a fact, and uh, that's well said.
0: They're at the top of the food chain. so uh this was your first deployment then this African deployment
1: yeah, so I unfortunately and i and I say that with uh with with uh, all sincerity, missed the Balkans. I really really want to go to the Balkans. I missed my opportunity because of you know it's, it's it was all time and place for for rotations, as you know like and i I went first to Valcarchi It was my first posting, and they had just had a rotation, and so I missed the Balkans. Um, but then turned my sights to UN mission because that seemed to be where we were going in the military at the time before Afghanistan became a a thing. So um, yeah, so that's, that's that.
0: Well, at least for that first deployment, uh, you must've had people that were Balkan veterans around
1: you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I I deployed with, uh, you know, four other observers from Canada and one of them was a, a, a patricia so uh, officer so an infantry officer from out west and just a, a balkan veteran had seen uh, many tours in africa he was he was he saved a, a boy's life the first night we were there you know you talk about trauma you know like a, a boy had stepped on a mine because we were in a mine belt and uh, you know and here's this jake my friend who's you know re- rescuing this young child with tourniquets and whatnot and you know i'm just thinking you know that kind of experience like i don't know if i would have reacted the same way he did but he obviously had you know so much experience uh seeing you know horrific things in the balkans uh that he did react positively um which 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 he's one of my first role models as a young fella so
0: i hate explosives so much uh living in an area that was one of the most heavily mined areas in the world if not the most at the time in the kraina um what did you have any close calls with landmines or ieds
1: we 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 found a lot of landmines, and um, you know, the, I think there's a lot to be said for lo- luck when it comes to anything with mines in really hot and hot areas, like in Africa, because essentially they can become almost like they're in concrete, right? So detonators won't work properly, and so the same route I traveled for seven months. The week after I left, my team had a massive explosion on it that killed two observers. So that's about time and place. That was my first of my nine lives. You know, I've had several uh, close calls. But um, no, there was mines everywhere is that we we thought we had good mine maps, but you know how those things go in the UN, you know, it's power to have good maps, but so people hold and hoard information. Um, So that was part of my mission there was to define where that that neutral zone and where all those minefields were in order to uh, to reintroduce the population back into local villages. But obviously we couldn't bring them in if it was full of mines. So demining was going on the entire time I was there.
0: Were any of the locals like, how was the the welcome for the UN troops there, especially not carrying weapons, which is just weird? But, um, like, how were, how did the locals receive you? Or was it a split? Some like you, some didn't like you, or were you welcome there?
1: I think that it was a split. I think, um, Ethiopians were, weren't were very happy with the UN presence. So anytime we went across the border to Ethiopia, that's where we had to get all of our, our supplies and whatnot because it was the closest, you know, quote-unquote city or town. Um, and we ate locally. So um, they were pretty hostile. They weren't very friendly. The soldiers always held us up at checkpoints and, you know, wanted to search our vehicle and just just a lot of harassment, more of a power power politics. Whereas the Eritreans, I thought, because um, they were much more, um, I don't know, they're hospitable and you know, I learned a lot of their language. So once they knew that you were trying to sort try of be there and have a strong influence, I think, and, and a positive influence as far as their country was concerned, then I thought they were a lot more welcoming. Um, and that's just that's just my my impression. And if I had been on the team on the other side of the river, maybe it would have been different. But uh, yeah, it was uh, <laughs> learning learning some of the local culture and language and whatnot. It was it was. Phenomenal for my, uh, you know, eye-opening, but phenomenal for my development as a young, as a young leader.
0: In the workup training, did you have any uh, language training prior to deployment?
1: I was fortunate to attend the the Peace Support Training Center in Kingston, Ontario, to to do a, a, a long course to become an observer, in, on that. They have people who have already been on mission come and teach you basics on language, and then they bring local Canadians, so Eritrean Canadians, they'll bring them to the center, and then they talk to you about culture, and they teach you some of the basic do's and don'ts, and et cetera. So it was a hugely valuable experience for me to have started my career with a tour like that. It was kind of a soft start.
0: The African tours tend to be a bit of a meat grinder, to say the least, um, yeah. regardless of the scope of the tour, whether it's as an observer. Um, we certainly weren't observers in, uh, in Yugoslavia. It was a little bit different. Yeah. But um, on this tour, what was the biggest culture shock for you?
1: Ooh, well... I had a, I had a hard, I had a bit of a hard run in with a couple of things that I wasn't prepared for culturally. Like, um, you know, in some cultures it's, it's okay. Sodomy is considered to be okay. And part of the, of their normal sort of way of life. And so I didn't understand a lot of why some of the local children were so frequently hanging around some of our camp, uh, our camps. And it was because of some UN members were, were abusive towards them. And, and finding that out and being powerless and trying to, to stop, you know, what is a cultural sort of accept, culturally accepted thing made me, it messed me up. It really, it, it was sort of one of the, it was a notch in my armor in the sense that I was like, how is this possible and why are we doing nothing about it? Um, so that was a really difficult thing for me to get my, uh, my mind around.
0: Something that we consider the worst of crimes, you know, um, the most ha- heinous of crimes. And there it's just Tuesday
1: or Thursday, or a day when supplies come in, so the children are all around the helipad, and, you know, it's, it was just, you know, for me, it's, I was blind for four months, Mark, and I thought my naivety, like, and and just being such an, you know, just, my eyes were wide open the entire time I was there, but I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily see the same things, and some of my teammates are, another teammate of mine from South Africa is the one who pointed out to me what exactly was going on, and, and then I saw it for myself, and it was like, absolute, it is horrific, and it is heinous, and, and it is it's all the things that we 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 you know don't accept in where we are um but then you're you're launched into cultures that you don't necessarily always understand
0: when you came home from this tour was the did you have that surreal feeling and was it difficult coming home and the 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 contrast of the two places did that mess with you
1: it absolutely did and i had a lot of health issues when i came home um I came home to a new, my my firstborn child, and um, so that was and right back into an instructional mode and a brand new uh, position. Uh, I was moved to New Brunswick, and and so I I came back to a very a- active sort of uh, um, career. But then I had an active home life. But then I had the sort of two, you know, very like you said, surreal, like you know, going from like a place where everything is dead and nothing ever lives, and everyone's sad, and everything is you know like mined to a uh, very green and sort of, well, I came back in the winter, so it was wintry green, still um, beautiful province, but beautiful and, and accepting and food. And like, there's just so much of everything, you know, and so much p- freedom and there's, you know, no oppression and, you know, and, and it, so yeah, it was a huge shift for me. And, and I also came back like 60 pounds lighter. So I was freezing. <laughs> I, yeah, I lost a lot of weight on my four, first tour. It was a bit of a, uh, life-changing experience in that sense.
0: Why the weight loss? What, what was going on?
1: Well, I was trying to lose weight. Uh, I was carrying a little extra weight. Um, but essentially it was just my lifestyle over there was that, uh, I, I did use fitness as a tool for my mental health. Um, I didn't even know it at the time, but it was essentially what I did. Um, and so I, I just took to that when I wasn't working and I, I worked all the time because really that's all you had to do. You're in a, we lived in an abandoned school, um, for, three two-thirds of my tour um you know with snakes in the walls and massive spiders and all kinds of great things but it was a it was a good experience but um i came back very changed physically for sure how do you
0: see canada differently because of the tours i mean our diversity and inclusivity um there has to be a different point of view on, on our melting pot society because of uh, the places that you've been and the, and the people that you've met.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah. How do I see Canada in the, like in, the, in our military? Um, I'm always very proud. Like every tour I've been on, I've always come away with um, a, a sense of pride, have being part of that mission or that task force or that, that group of deployed people, because I think we really do hold our own as Canadians when we're deployed, um, I don't know if like the diversity question is a great, another really great question because as far as diversity goes, until we start recruiting from our city centers and we and we have bases which are located closer to city centers, so people can maintain their lifestyles, their family centers, and their you know their core. Um, until we can tend to that, we're not going to have a really diverse military. It's just not fortunate. It's unfortunate that that's just the reality. Um, that's why our reserve force is so much more diverse than the regular force, because they are generally in city centers, right? Where people can live and stay and take their education and work um, outside of the military. So I guess if we didn't have the reserves um, in the military, we probably wouldn't have a lot of diversity, Mark. That's my, that's my opinion.
0: But I guess what I'm getting at is I remember the culture shock when I got back. Um, it was actually halfway. So halfway through, I I did my UN leave in Canada instead of staying in Europe. And the culture shock of coming home was worse than the culture shock of going there, of watching everybody walking around clueless as to how the rest of the world is without a care in the world. Um, in particular, I remember in Vancouver, the Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal, and something about it hit me like a ton of bricks. This great big, um, the terminal building with all the glass and every single window was intact, and nothing was smashed. There was no bullet holes anywhere. And right. just how nobody had any worries, but they had no idea that they had no worries. Did you have a similar kind of clash when you came home?
1: yeah that's a that's a fair that's a fair comment like that that was my experience certainly coming back from 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 eritrea was that like we take so much for granted like especially you know what children have as far as their ability to be schooled and you know have lives and you know not be you know work from very very young age and really essentially heck, have you know have a lifestyle that's that's promising and 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 they can do what they want um I was more surreal for me when I came back from Afghanistan the first time, uh, to, to be to be honest. But um, I think it's because I came back from Eritrea and I, I was thrown right back into the sort of the, the the flames of the institution and said, you know, go off and instruct, and and I was put to work right away as a bilingual young leader. So um, I didn't get a lot of time to think about it, and I had health issues <laughs> physically. I was hospitalized a couple times for. What turned out to be, I don't know, they don't really know. They thought it might have been some sort of gallstone or something. But it was all the culturally shifting, you know, diets and all kinds of stuff. It really, you know, people take that for granted as well, um, how that affects you.
0: Throughout your experiences and your different deployments, was there a particular moment where you realized, oh, shit, uh, I, I think I better reach out for help here? Like, was there that aha moment where, that, where you suspected that you may have PTSD?
1: Um, I think, um, my first tour to Afghanistan, we lost a couple of soldiers. One who was very close to me, his name's Jim Mitchell. Um, and when I saw his name, I was in the headquarters at the time, so I wasn't outside the wires. they like to say, um, as the quote goes, but, um, when we lost him, it, it became very real to me what we were doing there. Um, and that's unfortunate because he wasn't the first Canadian soldier to die in Afghanistan. Um, and he, he wasn't the last, Um, If you roll that forward to my combat tour in Afghanistan in 2010, uh, I lost my driver in an IED explosion um, on the 24th of May, which was literally almost a month after we'd been there. Um, That rocked me hard. And the way I got through it was through peer support. I didn't see professional help because I feared I would lose my job. And I didn't want to lose my ability to lead. And uh, it's everything that I had hoped to be in the military was a combat leader. And having been being given that opportunity was a privilege. It was an honor. And uh, so I, I just jammed it all down, Merck, like, like we do. We just keep pushing it down. We numb, you know, with alcohol and whatever you have available. Chewing tobacco is sort of a deployed uh, vice of mine, which is absolutely nasty. I know. Um, Has since quit, obviously. Um, yeah, the things you do to just get through the day. Um, and then you start becoming a little bit sullen on your downtime and you become a little bit more isolating when you're, when you're having your R and R and, you know, you can get, people get weird and um, you start to see it in people. But for me, it would have been sort of when I lost my driver, I had a hard time refocusing. As you look, um, so yeah, I,
0: as you look back, Christian, um, was your assumption correct now that you've got some time? If you had raised your hand when you knew that you're having a speed wobble? if you'd raised your hand and said, yeah, I think I need to talk to somebody, would that have been a career ender?
1: To be honest, I I think it would have been a career ender, especially in the the era, um, sort of you're talking like, you know, 2010 still mental health wasn't doing as well as it is now in the military. No, there's been Uh, a big shift. mm -hmm.
0: If that same thing happened today, uh, and I know you've been out for a little while, but if it happened today, do you, th- do you think it'd still be a career ender or ha- has the military? I don't improved? think so.
1: I don't think so because, um, um I think I, be- I was very public about, um, I became very public about my PTSD with while, while still serving. And I got great support from the leadership, um, at every level. And I think that if I had a- done that in 2010, 2011, 2012, when I was really starting to do things like risky behavior if, if I had been given an opportunity to go to Homewood for two months then and do the, their post-traumatic stress recovery program or one of the similar programs for first responders and vets, if I had done that then, I think absolutely it would have helped me and I would still be serving today.
0: There's a lot of douchebaggery in our community between each other about inside the wire and outside the wire operations and PTSD. Now, it's hateful, yes. It is hateful. And uh, you're inside the wire and were injured with PTSD. Um, Was that a struggle for you too? Did you uh, struggle with giving yourself permission to have the injury?
1: I absolutely did struggle with it. Um, Because essentially, uh, you know, I ended up doing my master's in in my, uh, in one of my courses that I was given the opportunity to do in the program. I did my master's on mental health injuries in Afghanistan vets at the time I had just re- returned from Afghanistan and had been fighting what I thought was just remorse I thought it was uh, you know I was going through the loss of my driver and we were I was dealing with the very heavy feelings of that but it was so much more and it was layered right or we're, we're like onions obviously we have all these layers of trauma that started at a very young age and sometimes they're they, they they resolve themselves and sometimes they linger and it you know it comes out in your behavior as an adult um, how you problem solve, how you manage emotions, etc. Um, but yeah, it it, um, it it. I just lost where I was, which is obvious—a good PTSD thing, right? Like my, my wife, my wife is not here to tell me where I was. What was the question again, Mark? I'm so sorry.
0: No, no, it, it's fine. Um, I hit you upside the head with a pretty good one, so <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, we were talking about inside the wire and outside the wire, um, how we are douchey oh, yes, to each absolutely. other. And, but douchey to ourselves too. Uh, Certainly as a UN tour guy, you know, um, you hear all the time, well, it wasn't that active you know, it's not like there was a bunch of combat and stuff. I mean, there's a little bit, I didn't see any personally, but it was a combat zone all the time. Um, So it took me 23 years to get diagnosed personally because I just couldn't accept that under those circumstances that I'd be injured with PTSD. Now in hindsight, it's ridiculous that I (laughs) like absolutely ridiculous that I had any problem acknowledging the injury uh, because of all of the events that happened. But this is a common, common thing. And the biggest thing I hear is inside the wire versus outside the wire. Uh, I've done a few episodes on it and and the truth is, is that inside the wire can be more difficult, not less difficult. Because if you're not facing the devil and getting a grip on him, it's worse in your mind than it is out in front and facing it. It is so much worse when you don't face it. And the, because uh, you don't have control, like you're not able to participate in the situation. You're not pr- able to actually throw some bullets down range or grab somebody and throw them in a car. Like you, it's so much worse in your you're mind because you're helpless. That's the, and that's why it's actually worse inside the wire that than outside the wire. And that same um, sense of helplessness as helplessness uh, we find in UN tours as well. And uh, so that's where we were going. And at what point did you um, accept that, that it was an injury and how hard was it because you were inside the wire? Was the question?
1: I think, yeah. I thank you again. <laughs> I I think that um, you're right. I think the tour. I call it touritis when people compared each other's tours and my tour was harder than your tour. And oh <laughs> yeah. my God, you had to, how many people died in your tour? Or how many people did you have confirmed kill and how many drone strikes and all this war porn as they call it? And people um, like to compare. Well, I got an extra pin on my uniform because on my tour we were considered commended and. Dated, and Um, I would recommend that everyone, um, the Balkans, the Afghanistan, you know, all these various places we've been and like yourself, the experiences we've had. um, I think for me, it was all right. I did. I wasn't ready in 2006, 2007 when, when Jim's name went on the board, I wasn't ready to accept um, other than that. It was very real. I wasn't ready to accept the fact that um, what, like what I was doing didn't matter. So that just made me work more but like you said you feel hope you feel helpless right and almost hopeless in a sense you know i was i was there for a really really uh, combat heavy tour in, in 2006 so there was a lot of injuries a lot of deaths and um and that you know and that, and that carried forward on other tours as well but you know when like you said when you're inside the wire and, and people come in and they've had that opportunity to have an effect on the ground whereas your effect is sort of behind the curtains supporting everything that's there and without you it would fail Right. And that's the other thing, right? The machine would fail without those various entities, but the people who provide you the information, the people who support you, the people who give you, you know, uh, keep you alive, you know, with, you know, food and everything else. So it, it is, it is a really frustrating, like you say, douchebag. Until I had my combat tour, I felt, in, I felt inferior. I was embarrassed to wear my medals. Um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't commendated on any of the tours because, you know, I wasn't, that wasn't the combat tour that they gave the commendation to, so those things build on your confidence, but they also they they take away from your experience as well. So that that's that's what I think.
0: I wasn't going to ask you this, but now I'm curious. On one of your medals, there's a gold leaf. Tell me about that.
1: Um, it's a it's a it's their oak cluster uh, cluster leaf of leaves, um, and it's called a call to mention in dispatches. Um, I was awarded. Of that for for actions that took place on the fifth of August in 2010 when I was shot down in a Chinook helicopter, um, it was me and 21 other people on board at the time. And uh, for for us, we were very fortunate because we had one of the most experienced pilots in all of the, uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, on board as the captain, and uh, he was able to land and pretty hard, but he was able to land the Chinook while it was still uh, on fire um, and, and losing its capacity to, to carry on. And then once we were on the ground, I was the highest ranking person. So I took over with, uh, with my Sergeant major and, uh, we were able to under contact, uh, maintain safety until, until we had recovery. Um, it was a very nasty situation and we, and it was, a unfortunately, um, a bit of an avoidable situation based on the fact that it was a heavy combat zone and we were, um, flying pretty low at the time, but, it's what, just one of those it, things you you what, risk.
0: What did the Chinook get got uh, get hit with? Bullets or an RPG?
1: RPG to the fuel tank. It was a well aimed shot, so it came it came through. The fireball came into the compartment of the helicopter about midway through the through the fuselage, and so it started. And then and then in the entire time there were small arms hitting the floor, and it was buckling the floor underneath our feet. So, but because the metal was so thick, it wasn't piercing. It wasn't making its way through the bullets, but it was making its way through the fuselage. So it was uh, pretty hairy. And then, of course, the actual helicopter itself started to fall apart because it was on fire. So those are um, all in AK room.
0: rounds uh, hitting the bottom of the Chinook?
1: AK rounds. So, yeah, small arms, probably uh, heavy, heavy small arms. So it was, uh, and once we landed, we also were under contact. So it was, it was a wild, wild adventure. Um, and I, I, um, and that's what that pin means. So both my Sergeant Major and I and, and some of the crew members, including the co-pilot, got the mentioned in dispatches for that day. And then the the pilot himself got a the medal of a medal of, uh, a, a, a medal of uh, bravery, but it's not for bravery. He got it for valor. Pardon me, it's a medal of valor, not the cross of valor. So, but nonetheless, it was he was he definitely was the one that saved our lives and got us to the ground. So it was a uh, it was an exciting day to say the least. Did that
0: day erase any sense of incomplete service or any sense of not being combat tested?
1: <laughs> uh it kind of was erased a little bit before then i we had a really as I mentioned we had a really rough start um to our tour. We lost one of our sold soldiers an Ied counter IED soldier like the first day we were there. um so we had a bit of a rocky start, but yeah, that was midway through tour and uh it was i just you know i when we landed and we finally uh, had recovery and it was actually my vehicles from my my headquarter vehicles were the first ones on scene. Um, and then we loaded all the passengers in the back of these armored vehicles. But as I sat there with my sergeant major on the back deck, there was rounds still hitting the APC and I just looked at them and, and I just said, if they didn't kill us now, they're not going to kill us with their, un- <laughs> their poorly aimed shots or not, and they're not working today. So I, uh, a little bravado, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it was, it made me feel like I was in the shit, so to speak, pardon my language.
0: No, no, you can swear all you want on this show. <laughs> so you're on the ground who came to extract you who, uh, who
1: Well, was we the, were, was we the were fortunate because we had uh, soldiers from uh, from the same task force so i was part of task force 110 which is based on uh, the the first royal canadian regiment uh, battle group and but we had elements from the third third battalion of the royal canadian regiment with us as well so the day on the day of when we crashed my, the first vehicles on scene were three of the vehicles from my from my squadron of my reconnaissance squadron, and then after that the quick reaction force came in with a, with the with a vengeance they made a ring of steel around us and uh
0: so when qrf came in and took control the, of the situation the qrf were uh three rcr
1: guys three rcr guys from oscar company yeah they were they're were great yeah
0: that's a good group to so come have in, uh, save in in your bacon. Makes, pardon me sorry that's a good group to have come in and save your bacon
1: absolutely yeah and it was uh I, I knew very well the the um, the other officer commanding for that for that subunit, and he uh, he was was pretty happy to see him. He had just gotten off the Chinook about ten minutes prior, so he wasn't on the Chinook when it crashed. He had just take he just just literally gotten off. Uh, he debarked at his camp location, so he was pretty funny to see come on scene. He's like, "Hey, I thought I'd see you sooner than this," but um, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely one of those days that um, marked a bit of a crazy tour for us. From
0: that. Are you still in touch with any of the people that were on that helicopter?
1: Oh, absolutely. So um, I was able to uh, help influence some of the some of the uh, the uh, the awards that were given out. Like for example, for the pilot. So I was able to stay in contact with him and his chain of command for both pilots. Actually, and so there the other person who was given the mention of dispatch was one of the door gunners at the time, who um, was a young reserves from Toronto. Um, and he, so I maintain contact with all of them, but the person who I maintain the most contact with is my Sergeant major who was with me at the time. Ken Pichet is his name. And two of the civilians on board were American civilians, um, high ranking American civilians working in Afghanistan at the time. And one is, uh, right now in Switzerland uh, and the other one is working, um, abroad as well. Um, as, uh, you know, they're, they're delegates and civil servants working to help develop countries abroad. So, um, yeah, it was, I still can't take, maintain contact with as many of them as I can. Um, every now and then someone will say, Hey, I was with you on that helicopter. You remember me? And unfortunately, because PTSD, my memory is fading so rapidly that well, I usually have to jostle it with, where were you? What did you say? Did you still have your weapon? Did you leave it behind? Did I have to yell at you? You know, <laughs> so well, it's and PTSD it's, and
0: it's probably some TBIs as well.
1: Absolutely. And, and it's just a matter of like, like knowing what, what affects me and I'm just getting used to used to the fact this is my my way of living now that I do have a short memory. It's very unfortunate, but Other, I like my spouse is super helpful when we're together with reminding me where I was when I speak.
0: Well, there are treatments. If you listen to the episode I did with Kelsey Sharon, uh, I think we covered it on that one. But there's this—I um, don't even know what they call it—but it's magnets, and 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 it, it helps. Uh, psilocybin helps considerably. It rebuilds lost neural pathways. So there are treatments that we can talk about. Yeah, I've been doing uh, a lot
1: of reading, I've been doing a lot of reading on, on both those things, and I actually have been following Kelsey Sharon as well. Yeah. So any,
0: any of those things that uh, we can talk off off air and hopefully point you in the right direction if, uh, if you want to go down that road for sure, that's not a problem.
1: Well, thanks for, thanks for that, Mark. Yeah, you bet, brother.
0: Tell me, are, are you working in the world of peer support right now?
1: I, I am about to launch into that world. I I think it's one of the most successful elements of recovery. And for me, it is, it's the day to day grind, right? You know, it's, it's having someone who can relate to, um, anger or, you know, severe sadness out of the blue or, you know, flashbacks or shitty sleeps because of nightmares. And so, um, I was part of a group, um, in just locally here and, um, I didn't find it very well. It was super helpful for me, but I it, it became sort of not very inclusive because, you know, it was just vets. The way I envision peer support um, for first resp- the warrior community, as I define it, are all first responders, your veterans, your correction services, your Border services, your first, you know, your first line people, like as we define them during COVID, right? Your medical workers, your nurses. There's so many people who are part of the warrior community in my mind. That, that's where I'm looking to push my my energy as far as uh, peer support goes. Um, if you look at, you know, I don't know how familiar I am with some of the programs in Canada, but the program that changed my life was actually a uh, Veterans Transition Network which they have across the country and it was developed uh, by a military vet. Yeah. There, was,
0: there, there was a gap there. There's an internet gap. So, um, the, the audience didn't hear it. Veterans transition network. And yes, well, I've had, uh, I've had them on the show.
1: Absolutely. Actually that's and how we so got that introduced. Was, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's how we got introduced. So, um, that, that was a game changer for me. Um, so once I was able to, uh, to do that program, I realized just the impact that peers have in helping stabilize me in my life. And I call that my blue circle. I describe it in my book as those, that social network that you have, that bubble of people. Um, you know, at first, um, when I got sick, Merrick, I felt that I needed to tell everyone my dirty business, like, Oh, I'm sick. It was like a cry for help, right? Like an attachment cry thing. Yeah. And so, but I lost a lot of really important relationships in my life because of that. Because people didn't know how to react to me. Um, I did some unsavory things, and I, you know, had done had risky behavior at the time. And I, you know, I, you know, people were kind of taking some distance from me. And then I realized that no, I need to get well myself before I can lean on a um, lean on my my sort of peer group. Um, and or sort of not peer group, my healthy peers, if you will. So, you know, if I'm able to attend peer support counseling or peer counseling, um, or just peer groups in general, what I found with time is it was, I was able to go there and vent some of my crazy PTSD stuff, as I like to say, and be, and have it like resonate with people. And then when I talk to my friends who are quote unquote healthy, um, You know, I can talk to them about other things. You know, sports, the weather, and all these other things that I have on the go. And I don't get as I don't get as emotionally triggered to want to share with them the things that make them feel uncomfortable.
0: One of the worst parts of PTSD is the isolation, Uh, because you are the square peg in the round hole. uh, You do what you do, what you need to do to survive, and a lot of that time, a lot of the time, it uh, manifests as isolation. The only place that i know of where you can truly be yourself at first you have to know who that is and you have to recognize that you're an injured veteran and and be able to to own that but when you are a little bit down the healing road because not everybody's a fit for peer support if you're too acute can't do it because you'll just wreck the room but uh, once you're stabilized a little bit and you can uh, be with other injured veterans if it's run right I agree with you, Christian. It's the it, the best place to be because it's the only place you can truly be yourself. And if you can be yourself, that means you're being accepted. There's no judgment and people understand you. Absolutely. Now, if you're with other veterans who either aren't injured or don't know that they're injured, that's not a fit because they don't know how um, no. how to deal with it. They don't know how, how to empathize and, um, and they are almost guaranteed to be douchey about it. Every time.
1: Yeah. And, uh, it's not real, I call it. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: so the the only place to be for us is among other injured veterans who are determined to recover. Now, I put it in that caveat. They have to be determined to recover. Otherwise, it's a pity party, and right. that's no good for nobody. Um, yeah, yeah. Has,
1: there has to be the will to recover. You're right.
0: There has to be. What are, from your experience, what are some of the top do's and don'ts of peer support because if you do it wrong it can be devastating
1: well um the things that i was taught you know simple simple rules no crosstalk, you know when you're when you're in a peer group they you know it's it's too easy to do trauma comparison for example you know like my trauma is worse than yours oh you were in bosnia here when i was bosnia then and so that crosstalk and trauma comparison that those are no-go areas for for me um giving advice, um, That that has always been something I've been counseled not to do. It's different if someone solicits advice, say like, hey, do you guys know I'm having a hard time with this? You know, how would you manage this? You know, and then people can offer their suggestions, like, for example, the memory issues. Um, That's different than saying, hey, I heard you say that you had a rough time dealing with your teenager. Did you think about, you know, putting them in military boot camp? You know, that's advice that not everyone wants to hear, right? So, um, and that's just a funny example. But um, I've had poor experience with some groups and i've had really good experience with others so you're right it can be detrimental as well it can be just as it's a double-edged sword if it's not done properly um i think the 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 do's if you will the things that should be maintained are the sort of anonymity um the confidence that you have that things stay in a group and it's not like one of these things where you tell like you know things that are illegal and you know obviously if you know if, if it's wild and you know it needs to be addressed and then people are smart, but I'm talking about, you know, if people are having a rough go at home or whatever, like that's not the stuff you turn around and talk about over, you know, having a butt out back or something like that. That's the stuff that you really have to respect people's privacy. Um, And I think that's one of the things that makes peer groups, um, people go back to peer groups is if they feel that safety. And if you don't have safety in a peer group, um, whether it's, you know, from fear of, you you know, other people hearing about, you know, your issues, acceptance, judgment, whatever it is, if you don't have that safety, then, then it is a failure in my opinion.
0: And for anybody who would like to put together a peer group, I would like to refer you back to the episode I did with Sid Gravel, S Y D Sid Gravel. Um, he is a peer support expert and has written several books on the topic. And that's a great place to start. Um, Peer support is powerful. It's a little bit tough to find sometimes. There's OSI CAN, OSI um, CAN, and um, that's one to look up. It is national, but it's not everywhere. So they're doing their best to, to grow. And the OSIS program in a lot of areas, it's OSISS, Operational Stress and Injury Support Systems, does have peer support. Um, but it's not everywhere, and that's where the show fills the gap. Just listening to the to these episodes, listening to these conversations like this one, uh, excellent conversation today is peer support. It's not interactive because you can't participate in it. Um, but it is peer support because you're hearing your peers talking about the real stuff and the do's and the don'ts. So I encourage people to uh, to look up the Sid gravel uh, episode or to look him up on the internet and buy all of his books and read them all. Uh, Because if you do it wrong, people only put their hand up once.
1: That's a fair comment.
0: They don't put it up twice. And there is no worse thing than sanctuary trauma, where you put your hand up for help and it gets smacked. That puts people into isolation and suicide happens all the time because of that. Because it's like, well, I just mustered up every bit of courage that I had Plus some put my hand up and I got shit on. Well damn it. I guess there's no hope. And suicide yeah. happens all the time.
1: It's a re- it's an absolute real problem. You you are hundred percent correct. It's one of those problems that makes me kind of sick to my stomach if uh, you know, on that subject. You know, sanctuary trauma is a heavy, heavy topic. Uh and it is a problem. It's a problem not just in the military. It's policing is it's is just rampant with it.
0: Policing's brutal. Um It is fire is brutal paramedics i uh, from what I've been seeing may be at the top of the list for shitty as far as how you treat each other it's when egos yeah, when egos get involved it's just brutal um I think the first responders have it worse than the military actually I'm almost I can say with some confidence that the first responders have it way worse than the military less access to resources and more stigma
1: absolutely less structure yes yeah well a lot and, of them, and a fewer layers of a structure as well
0: they don't work in big groups right military works no. in big groups and um, first responders work as in fire teams and they're fractured fire teams all over the place they're they're two or th- groups of two or three and um, they see each other rarely <laughs> you know and when no. they when they do there's not a lot of interaction So because of that, that that same sort of sense of cohesiveness and tribe just isn't there. That same esprit de corps is not there. Um, Instead, it's a bunch of people out to get each other, it seems like sometimes. But the support is not there. Um, I mean, military isn't doing a great job, but it is better. And it's improving. But in the first responder world, uh, there's a lot of them where this show or shows like it are all they have. They have nothing else because they're just not they're terrified of sanctuary trauma or getting a knife put in their back or ending their career by putting their hand up
1: it's a real problem it is a significant problem in all those fields you mentioned um and and like you said if we didn't have podcasts like yours and we didn't have resources like um like peer support and, and and things like the books and you know the people who are addressing the issues with the real life experience um i think we'd be we'd be reverting in time. Like we're going backwards some days. That's the way it feels as a society when it comes to mental health.
0: Some days, but I think we're going uh, two steps forward, one step back. So overall we we are certainly over the last five years making a lot of progress. There's so many programs, so many awareness programs um, where people are right out of the closet with uh, the injury uh, the Rolling Barrage, uh, the Cross Canada mo- Veteran Motorcycle Ride, um, absolutely com- massively supported by the first responder community, and I think a big reason that they're supporting it so much is because they're like, yeah, finally so- somebody putting their hand up and normalizing this and saying, you know, this doesn't make you weak, <laughs> you know, or it doesn't uh, necessarily make you unfit for duty. This is just a an injury that happens, and instead of Burying it under uh, a few gallons of alcohol. Uh, <laughs> let's deal with it.
1: Absolutely. And move. Forward. And and I, and you and you mentioned that earlier. Like you know, at what point do you put your hand up and and how you're received? It makes a huge difference in how you recover. Um, those those first those first steps in recovery are critical. Um, that's my that was my lived experience.
0: I wasn't well. I'm just going to go with. Uh, my curiosity here. I want to go back to the Chinook. That pilot won, um, or was awarded. Didn't? It's not. It's not a prize. You don't win it, but uh, was awarded accommodation for valor because he was yes. able to to land a Chinook. And for those that don't know, a Chinook is a twin helicopter, is a twin motor, twin rotor helicopter. It's a troop carrier. It's a great big thing, louder than hell. And, um, under impossible circumstances with this Chinook on fire was able to land it. And with those exceptional skills, because of that, um, people survived, whereas it could have just as easily been the largest one-time death, um, all at once in probably the history of the Afghan war. Is it
1: fair? it would have been and it was the first time that a, a canadian helicopter crashed where everyone walked away um which was all because of bill fieldings uh, his his actions that day which got him the medal of, of valor as you mentioned i stumbled on my words earlier but his bravery that day but in his decision making but it was the medal of uh, valor that he was he received from the governor general
0: now i'll give you a contrast i was on a i was in a carrier so uh I always like translating for people that don't know these things. An M113 carrier looks like a tank, except um, instead of just a tank crew, it's a section, an infantry section is inside that tank. Uh, it's a tracked vehicle. Ours was the M113, which was already more than 20 day 20 years out of date when we <laughs> were using them. Right. And, um, we're going across these things were known for the final drive piling up which is um the way that they work with tiller bars like a bulldozer you you got two bars to 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 steer the thing and you put the brakes on one side you turn you put brakes on the other side and you turn well our driver in that carrier that day was tom greenlaw um (laughs) and i Hope still try to hope to track him down. I know where he is. I just got to get him to return a phone call because he saved my life and the life of everybody in that uh, vehicle that day because the well-known problem of the final drive uh, piling up happened while we're in the middle of this bridge. This bridge was an easy 150-foot drop and um, the guardrails were made out of Yugoslavia tin. (laughs) So they weren't doing oh a lot, and they're sure not going to stop that a twenty two. Like they They're not bad gonna, mix. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad mix, and they're not going to stop a twenty-two thousand pound vehicle or whatever the weight was. So this uh, vehicle takes a hard right, right for the guardrail, and um, all the guys that were hatches up could see what was happening. Uh, I, I was uh, I was inside the carrier, so I just thought we hit the ditch. I didn't know what the hell was happening, and um, we hit the guard wheel. A guardrail. We should have gone sailing off, but the hand of God somehow came down, and um, at the very, very last second, um, Tom was able to get a grip on that uh, malfunctioning carrier, and we were, we did a Dukes of Hazard up on one track, up which apparently they're not able to do, but it did it anyway, and we ended up back on this bridge, right at the high point. So, any physics, any, any logic, we, we should all be Absolutely. dead. There's no way we should have uh, survived that. Now, when your pilot performed exceptionally, your pilot got a medal. They tried to charge Tom Greenlaw. Oh, boy. I don't know what charge. Uh, conduct on becoming, uh, dereliction of duty, I have no idea. But he saved our lives in an impossible situation. He t- like yeah. impossible through no fault of his own. It was an equipment malfunction, but they couldn't um, acknowledge that it was an equipment malfunction because then there would be uh, liability from the people up top for not. Uh, Absolutely. For, uh, that's,
1: that's a terrible situation.
0: Terrible. So same similar situation where we should all be dead. Absolutely. And instead of getting a medal, which he deserves in my mind, uh, they went to charge him. Now, oh, just imagine the damage that that would do to
1: Tom. Yeah, certainly. Especially if, if you know, he did his best and, and was able to save you and then have that slap.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't know slap how, how, how many of head. us were in that carrier, maybe eight of us, but uh, we're all alive because of that man. And knowing that that's what happened, uh, that's what makes that event difficult for me and the others in that, that were in that carrier. Was not the event itself, but the leadership. Now you were a, a commanding officer. So, what is your takeaway from the contrast of these two stories, and what is the leadership lesson in this?
1: That's that's a great question. Well, I uh, I see the cracks in the system when it comes to how we how we look at. Um, especially when deployed, how we look at soldiers' actions in deployment versus officers' actions in deployment, leadership, getting commended for things to represent the entirety of the group, vice seeking those people like your driver and giving them the kudos that they deserve. Um, What is my take, having been a commanding officer? My take from the situation is that um, the military has also shifted a lot from when you were, I think they've gotten a lot more into more frequently recognizing people than they used to. Um, certainly, I think when we were starting out in the military, both you and I, um, people getting medals or pins or commendations, it was few and far between. Um, and generally, it wasn't the people. It was people for doing, you know, organizing, you know, events. It wasn't necessarily for bravery or, or for heroics or for, like, being absolutely devout and committed to your work. It was for, um, you know, for, for things that didn't seem to matter to the general pu- public, uh, populace of the military but so what i i feel it's not fair it's an unfair system as it it applies to honors and awards and how it applies is to um how we how we view the success of operations and who gets that kudos um rarely do i feel that troops get the benefit um of of hearing all the nice things that are said behind closed doors and you know leadership seminars and meetings and whatnot. So, yeah, it's definitely a huge contrast, your experience with that, and then my experience with uh, Bill getting that Medal of Honor. I mean, it it would seem like he deserved even more than that. Like like you said, like like your driver, he saved lives that day.
0: He did. And uh, and instead of getting a pat on the back, (laughs) I would be shocked if he didn't get an injury from that. Um, You know, if that didn't result in an OSI
1: absolutely that, a sanctuary
0: that, trauma that, oh yeah that betrayal of the system Yeah, cuz that was something else but we're about there um, christian how do people what what tell me uh, what's the address it's warriorsforlife.ca so warriors the number 4 life.ca is your is your website. website yes and on the website you can find your book which is Parade state 0 also available on amazon.com amazon.ca and You do speaking gigs as well. Is that right?
1: That's my intent. I have done several in the past. I I did a couple at the Royal Military College of Canada. Uh, I also did one with uh, Eight Wing in Trenton, Ontario. That's my intent is to get out and just to discuss, you know, the importance of mental health and leadership um, so that, like you said earlier, when that person puts their hand up, um, they don't get it slapped. um, And people, there's a lot less um, occurrences of, of things like sanctuary trauma. That's the intent is like, as I try to just bolster that it's okay to be a leader and put your hand up, you know, like you had asked me if I had to put my hand up, you know, would I, would have my career been affected? Um, it would have been, um, I think, um, until I became very public with it. And then, then I got the support I required. And I think you're right. I think we are two steps forward, one step back, but we are still making progress.
0: I think we are making progress. And Christian, thank you for being one of the many veterans who are pushing forward and doing what they can to to help this community because this community needs all the help it can get.
1: I totally agree. And I really appreciate your kind words, American for having me today.
0: Well, I appreciate you and um, please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. For veterans, first responders, and their families. Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers, Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M I L L A R S, law.com. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, Please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please, share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring.